When you think of the state of the world, when you try and evaluate for yourself just the, the, the state of the world today, right now, what comes to mind for you? And what, what kind of tone is there? What kind of emphasis? Is it like, wow, the state of the world, this is wonderful, things are great, or is it dour? Is it like, oh no, what's happening? This is terrible. What, what sort of things come across your mind as you think about the state of the world? You think instantly of the, the millions starving in Yemen right now. The Syrian crisis that continues to exist right now. Do you think of the political turmoil in so many countries and between so many countries that we can honestly, accurately say there's political turmoil in the world? Do you think of the threat of nuclear war? Or do you think of some social issues that you simply observe in your own community, in our culture? Think of this, the systemic abuse that's being brought to the fore, that is a spotlight is shining on right now, and we're saying, yes, good, this needs to change. But we're also experiencing the devastation of, oh, how prevalent this is. The mental illness in our community and in our families. The addictions that take a toll on those individuals and those that love them so much. Living in the social media age and all the connectedness it's bringing, it's also brought on a loneliness epidemic. Do you think about that when you think of the state of the world? Or do you think of, every time you look at a comment section on the internet, our outrage culture? We live in a time, in a culture of outrage. Mark Sayers did some writing on this. And uh, one thing he talks about is uh, manspreading. Are you familiar with manspreading? If you don't, let me educate you because it's one of the latest things that there's a lot of outrage about. Manspreading is when a guy sits down in a chair, usually it's public, public transit of some sort, um, where his, his legs are spread wide and encroaching on the passenger beside them. That's manspreading. Some of you are doing it right now. You need to stop it. We live in the 21st century, people. Stop manspreading. It's the last thing. It's one of the latest things that there is outrage about today. There's a young woman, this video went viral of her. She had a mix of bleach and water, and she was on a train in a city, and every man that she came across that was manspreading, she poured this bleach water onto their groins. And this was caught on video, and it went viral, and it was like, yes, she's standing against men, right? And it, it went viral. It turns out that that video was traced back to the Kremlin. It was Russian propaganda, it was, it, it was an attempt to manipulate and stir up havoc in society. In fact, there, was, uh, there were two counter-protests in a city in Texas recently, two opposing groups, very different stances, arrived on the streets in this Texas city protesting issues and protesting one another, and things got a little out of hand. Turns out those who sparked the protest went all the way back to Russia. It was fake social media accounts 
egg, egging one another on and forming this protest. And so all these people went out into this Texas city streets yelling at each other, outraged at each other, and it was just propaganda from across the world. Now, Russia isn't the only country that does this. Of course, many countries do. Canada doesn't. We're, we're peaceful people. But why, why was Russia doing this? Why are they doing this? Why is there all this? Did they, did they mess with the elections? How did that? See, what they're doing is they're trying to create further outrage, inner turmoil within countries that we would turn on one another and lose sight of and lose power globally as we turn on one another. This is, there's a term for this. It's called soft power. Hard power is, is power where, with military aggression, we have the power because we have the guns. That's hard power. Soft power is different. Soft power is like Hollywood, right? The stories that, that get woven, the influence that comes from Hollywood is a soft power. Social media influence, that's a soft power. And so these things are happening and, and, and they're being used in addition to hard military strength. There's actually... Uh, wars being waged with this soft, right, subtle, hidden sometimes, confusing, not able to trace it back, influences that are really messing with our culture. And so you add that layer to all the basic things I talked about in terms of war, nuclear war, starvation, loneliness, and you think this world is in utter chaos, things feel out of hand. We start to describe the world as dark and gloomy and oppressive when we're talking about the realities that exist in the world. You ever feel hopeless about the state of the world? You ever on like, you know, I don't know, a rainy, cold, dark, depressing BC day think, man, how are things ever going to change? The prophet Isaiah spoke into such a context. The book of Isaiah is a surprising message of grace from God to people who rebelled against him in the midst of chaos and oppression. By Isaiah's, Isaiah's time, the vast majority of the people in Israel, Judah, the nation had been divided into two. They didn't trust in God's covenant with Abraham anymore or the promises of God that came through the Davidic line, the Davidic king. Judah was full of rebellious people who had moved on from trusting God. They just looked around at the oppression and said, forget it. But God, we see if you, if you read this, this, this prophetic book in the Old Testament called Isaiah, what Isaiah is saying is about to happen is judgment, purifying, and best of all, renewal. God was on the brink of renewing his people in such an amazing way that it would attract the nations. Isaiah is often referred to as the fifth gospel or the gospel of the Old Testament because as you read it, like passages we're going to read this morning in Isaiah chapter 9, you go, man, that's all about Jesus. And it is all about Jesus. So as we, just before I read the text, I just want you to let you, let you know we've pressed pause on our First Corinthians series. We've got just a few weeks left to work on that. We'll, we'll pick that up again after Christmas, but this Sunday, next Sunday, and Christmas Eve, we're just doing a little mini-series called The Cradle, Cross, and Crown. Because we celebrate at Christmas the cradle, the manger, the coming of Christ as an infant, 
but not only the, that, that in-breaking, but also that he went to the cross. We want to look at what he accomplished there. And then we want to look at the fact that he rose and he rules and he reigns and is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we can trace that to this moment when Jesus came. So we're looking at the cradle, the cross, and the crown this morning and for the next three messages, two more after this. So let me read for us. It'll be on the screen as well. You're welcome to open it in your Bible and see God's word for yourself. We're going to pick it up in the last verse of chapter 8 and we'll read through to chapter 9, verse 7. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling, tramp, uh, tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's how we're going to break it down this morning. We're going to look at light will pierce the darkness. Joy will eradicate the gloom. Peace will conquer oppression. And finally, the passion of Jesus will accomplish it. So first, the light will pierce the darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shone. Isaiah uses this darkness and light metaphor to speak of oppression and liberation. People in darkness have seen a great light. Then there's this little line in verse 1 that speaks of Galilee. What do you know about Galilee? Well, Galilee was the place that Jesus grew up, the place that Jesus, where Jesus lived, the place where his ministry began. And interestingly, Galilee was the place that when foreign armies came to invade Israel, the first area to come under attack was the way of the sea, the Gal Galilee of the nations. See, Isaiah predicted, prophesied, that the least likely area of Israel, the far northern section that was both the most oppressed militarily and also the most influenced by neighboring paganism religiously, that they would be the first to see the light of Jesus. See, those who were so used to and so entrenched in darkness would experience a bright light like nothing that had ever shone 
before. The light of grace, the light of truth. We come to Galilee and on from there into Israel and then to the nations. Secondly, we see that joy will eradicate the gloom. The end of chapter eight, again, we see that they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And then on to verse three, for you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. See, there's these people who are living in this deep, thick darkness. And in this, this, this darkness, this oppression, there is this gloom, there is this depression. Life is hard, life is difficult, life feels hopeless. Faith is difficult to hold on to. And then this text tells us that in the midst of that, there's this joy, there's this joy that's coming that will eradicate do away with the gloom. And the two illustrations of the joy in these verses are joy in harvest and joy in dividing the spoil. Talking about joy is in peacetime and joys in military victories. In other words, Isaiah isn't speaking of momentary joy in one particular circumstance, but he's talking about a sustained joy in all circumstances. Isaiah is talking about a joy that will come that will be the kind of joy that eradicates gloom and despair. And don't you think our world needs that kind of joy? (laughs) There is one coming, says Isaiah, who will bring that kind of joy to that kind of gloom goes on to talk about the peace that will conquer oppression. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why is Isaiah talking about the soldiers' uniforms being burned? Well, because there's a day coming when they won't need those anymore. They won't need their weapons. They won't need their military boots and uniforms. You can just put those in the fire. Won't need those anymore. There's a day coming when military strength won't be a thing. Isaiah is speaking of a day when peace will come like the world's never seen. And then it refers to Midian. A few of you are like Old Testament know-it-alls, junkies. You know this story. You think Midian and you go, yes, right, Judges chapter 7. It's this fascinating little story of of the Israelites and there's this man named Gideon and and God says to Gideon, I'm going to give you victory over the Midianites. And Gideon's like, really? He lays out a fleece. It's the whole laying out a fleece thing, which really has everything to do with Gideon just not believing that God's actually saying, I'll give you victory. He's like, really? Because if it's wet, then I believe you. And then if it's dry, okay. Like he's just like testing God. He's much like Moses before Moses went to Pharaoh. He doesn't really believe that God could do such an amazing thing, like give the Israelites victory over the Midianites. But finally he comes around. He's like, okay, wow, God, you've really revealed yourself. You will do this. And so there's 32,000 Israelite soldiers. But God is telling Gideon, look, I just want, I want, I want my people to know that I won the victory. 
Because if the 32,000 soldiers win against Midian, they're going to go, wow, we really fought pretty well. I took five, five guys by myself. You know, like they'll just kind of take, they'll tell the story and, and just be like, wow, we really, we conquered them. And God didn't want them to get confused like that. He wanted them, no, 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 no. God wins the battle. And so there's these 32,000 Israelite men and God tells Gideon, send home every soldier who's fearful about fighting the Midianites. So Gideon like goes before these soldiers and is like, anybody who's afraid, you guys can go home. And 22,000 of them go home. It's like, oh, okay. 10,000 left. God tells uh, Gideon, take them down to the water for a drink. And they go and drink. And it's not like some of them drank properly and some of them didn't. It has nothing to do with that. God just wanted to whittle down the numbers. And 9,700 of them went down to the water and drank like dogs, just kind of knelt to the water and just lapped it up. 300 of them gathered water in their hands and drank out of their hands. And God said, I'll use those 300, 32,300. He's like, now let's go to battle. Here's what you need, a trumpet. Okay, that's that's one approach. Uh, A torch, well, okay, all right. And some jars. Okay, anything else? No. Okay, so they break into three groups of 100 and they surround the Midianite camp in the night. And literally all they have is they've got their trumpets, their torches, and these jars. And they start to blow the trumpets and break the jars. And so there's the crashing of jars and there's torchlight and there's trumpets and the Midianites wake up and they pull out their swords and they just start, in panic, in bewilderment, they just start taking each other out. And then the rest flee and they chase him down. See, God wanted to show them that he wins the war. God wins the battle. The victory is his. He's speaking of a day when peace will come in unlikely ways. Peace came to Israel in an unlikely way and it was at the hand of God. And we think, okay, yeah, but like, there's soft power now and social media and uh, I don't think lanterns and jars and trumpets are going to help, right? So, so like what or who can bring light and joy and peace to a fractured world like we've been talking about? Uh, Brad Watson wrote about Harry and, Meghan, uh, Harry and Meghan's royal wedding it happened this last spring on May 19th, 2018. Prince Harry of England and uh, married Meghan Markle in Windsor, England, and the event was marked by the usual fanfare of such weddings, notable people, international media, commentary, vows, a sermon, big British hats, right, and love. There were a few notable, unique things that happened. Meghan walked herself two-thirds of the way down the aisle until her future father-in-law, Prince Charles, walked with her the last third, but by no means gave her away. Additionally, Megan was the first uh, mixed-race individual, being half, uh, having a, a black father and a white mother, I believe, to marry into the royal family of England. Even more unconventional, she also wasn't of nobility, had been divorced, was an actress, and an American. Even though Harry is quite far from the throne and all of those previously mentioned factors, this wedding became the most watched royal wedding in history. 
More people watched this wedding than his brother William marrying Kate, and more than his father's wedding to Diana. But most ordinarily, however, it was just a wedding. The morning after, though, a journalist for an international news magazine wrote an article with the headline, This Wedding Changes Everything. The journalist went on to note everything I just mentioned and expound on how the ceremony was transforming international politics, racism, sexism, and even religious strife all in one fell swoop. The wedding changes everything. Implied in this is elections, education, fame, power, laws, military, Hollywood, or even weddings can heal our broken world. However, Notably, the other headlines from that day were about the President of the United States being subpoenaed, a shooting at a Texas high school, and the falling apart of nuclear talks with North Korea. And yet, a wedding in Windsor had changed everything. See, we do this, the human heart, does, even, if, even if you're an atheist, you're looking to something in the world to save it to right the wrongs, to be the corrective that brings peace. We, 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 we've, we've seen this in human history over and over and over. This is it. This is going to be it. Whether it's Barack Obama in 2008 and then it's not. Or it's a royal wedding this past spring. But then we just know it's not. See, it's understandable to hope in that sort of transformation, that variety of world peace. It's a lovely sentiment. The love and union of two highly famous people could change the world. After all, fame facilitates change, we, see, we, we, we seem to think. Plus, they are two highly educated and talented people, which in our post-enlightenment viewpoint leads to the greatest types of change. Education, talent, and reason are the beginnings of world change. Add to all these factors, ethnic and historical backgrounds, TV ratings, and of course, the hats. And it's not hard to exclaim, this changes everything. Even though we all know it doesn't. The world doesn't work that way. World peace doesn't arrive that way. Fame, education, talent, power, and personality don't solve the world's deepest problems of injustice, evil, and war. In fact, we instinctively know this wedding likely won't change any human heart, except perhaps the two that exchange their vows and any kids they may have. But here lies the problem. If all talent, power, fame, and beauty in the world can't defeat the anxiety, depression, anger, and angst within our own hearts, how could it ever transform the world? The big question I guess I'm trying to ask is what can bring your heart and the world peace? Like what can bring your heart and the world peace? Well, let's close by talking about the passion of Jesus accomplishing it. Verse 7 tells us, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We can translate that last line to be the passion of Jesus will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord. 
So if fame, TV ratings, and political influence can't bring about lasting peace in our hearts and world, what can? Well, God's answer to a massive Midianite army was 300 men with lanterns, jars, and trumpets. And God's answer to all the tyranny that the world has ever seen is a child. When I read Old Testament stories like the battle against the Midianites, and I read about God taking the 32,000 into 300, I think, man, this is just prefiguring something even better than God winning a victory from 32,000 to 300 against the Midianites. It's prefiguring God going even further down to one. And not just defeating the Midianites, defeating the powers in the whole world. Like, what's the answer to the tyranny? Isaiah 9 tells us a child is. In such a, like, 1 Corinthians 1 kind of like, what does God do? How does he, he uses the weak things to, and the strong, like the, the, the foolish things, not the wise. How's God going to do it in the world? This messed up world. Send a child. That's what verse 6 tells us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. One of the things I love about the line, a son is given. It's passive. What's our part in that? It's not, we have nothing to do with that. God, God's doing this. God brought a child into the world that would change the world truly change everything. Ray Ortland Jr. notes of this, we step onto the battlefield after the victory is won and all we do is celebrate. It's Christmas. The battle's already won. What, what do I do? Just get on the battlefield and celebrate. The victory is already won. It's Christmas. Yeah, but what will he be like? Like who, who can do this? Well, our text gives us four titles, four descriptive names. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Just to define these really quickly, Wonderful Counselor, really, the word wonderful is this Hebrew word that, that, that when translated implies the miraculous and the supernatural. That's how it's used in the Old Testament. And then this word counselor speaks of wisdom and plans. So Jesus is the wonderful counselor in that God will work through Jesus to demonstrate extraordinarily wise and wonderful things. This one who changes the world is a wonderful counselor. He's also mighty God. He is a God who has might. He is God and he is mighty. He defeats his enemies easily. He's the wonderful counselor mighty God. Thirdly, the everlasting Father, or put another way, the Father of eternity. When it speaks this way, when it's saying everlasting, it's a title that just simply cannot apply to any human ruler, but speaks of the one who will rule on King David's throne forever. He's an everlasting Father. Now, when it's talking about Jesus as Father, it's not like it's getting into the Trinitarian language of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No, 
The reference to Jesus as the everlasting father is that Jesus was sent to father a new humanity. You and I are children of Adam and Eve. We're born into their sinfulness. But Jesus is the father of a new humanity. He's, their wonderful, he's our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and our prince of peace. Our word for peace in English is quite weak. The original word is shalom, which speaks of wholeness, of full economic, like full economic, spiritual, and physical flourishing. And the most amazing aspect of Jesus as our Prince of Peace is that he reconciles us. Not just that he brings peace to the world out there. The most amazing thing about Jesus as the Prince of Peace is that he reconciles you and I while we are still enemies of his. Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, Jesus brought peace by taking all violence, even ours, upon himself. That's why we taught cradle, cross, and crown. Yes, Jesus came. God is doing this through a child, and yet he's going to grow, and he's going to take the world on his shoulders, every wrong, ours included. Take the violence so we could get the peace. There is no answer to tyranny like Jesus. I have just really, really basic kind of applications to that. So let him rule and reign in your life. Like there's no other answer that's satisfying in the world for the tyranny, for the oppression. Like what do we do with this? Jesus deals with this. So let him rule and reign in your life. A royal wedding is not going to change everything. A particular president is not going to change everything. The other thing I would say is worship him. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He enters into the fray of our broken condition and the world gone mad. And he's come to bring us everlasting peace and joy, shine a light on the darkness for all eternity, wash it out. I love the line in the carol, oh, come let us adore him. If you're anything like me, so I won't necessarily assume you are <laughs> that bad. Uh, the Christmas routine, sing the carols, put up the tree, do some readings, light some candles. Like, I know this, right? We just kind of go there. Yeah, Jesus came. Great. Super. Love that. Starbucks does Christmas really well. I love that. Like Jesus came. <laughs> to deal with the utter ruin that we find ourselves in. Jesus came to write that, to remedy that, to rescue us. At Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus entered the mess, not as a ruler, but as a baby. We've been using, our worship ministry have uh, made these Advent videos we've been watching, which I, I find just so beautiful. And have you caught the tagline by now? Like, we'll keep using he came once, he will come again. He came once, he will come again. Because we live in the tension, right? 
and I know you feel the tension. Like, man, I'm losing loved ones right now. You want to talk about peace? Like, I don't feel that peace. You don't know how broken my family is, how messed up my life is, what's going on in my marriage, or just... I'm looking at the world as you talk to me about the peace and joy of Jesus. Yeah, he came, but the world is brutal. But here's the promise. He came once. And that means he will come again. Like Isaiah before the cradle was like, Jesus is coming. He's going to come through this Galilee place, and he's going to shine like a light, and he's going to be a light to the nations. You're going to see it. And he came, and he was exactly right. That should bolster our faith to be like, I can trust him. Yeah, I'm living in the mess. I'm living in the broken, but Jesus died for me. Jesus came for me at Christmas. And that gives me a hope that, yes, if he came once, like the prophet said he would, and he did, and that the scriptures tell us, and he's coming again and will make everything right, I can believe that right now as I'm crushed by the world. That's what I want to invite you to do this morning. I know it's kind of big, but I hope it's, it, it, it that, fit that into your heart a bit and be like, okay, I can, I can live in the wrestling of my life right now knowing he's coming again. I can count on his promises. And that like military equipment is going to be burned up because it won't be needed anymore. There won't be starving people anymore. There won't be oppression anymore. There won't be racism anymore. There won't be addictions anymore. Just light. Just joy. Just peace. See, Jesus is the only one who can deal fully and finally with injustice, war, and every form of evil and bring eternal light and joy and peace. And what's his solution? It's not a bigger army to defeat the, uh, the Assyrian army that in Isaiah's time they were facing. That's not his approach. It's not to defeat the bully with an even bigger bully. That's not his approach. What's his approach? He sent a child. And when Mary held her baby boy that first Christmas, she was holding the one who came to heal our broken world. Like that first Christmas, as Mary held her baby boy, she was holding the one who would break oppression and bring peace to the world. That first Christmas, as she held her baby, she was holding the one who would pierce the darkness with life-saving light and turn gloom and despair into unending joy. Merry Christmas, hallelujah, let's pray. Jesus Wow, thank you for the cradle. Thank you that the God of the universe in your love and your compassion would come to us in humility. The God over all things would be the most vulnerable of little ones. For us, for love, for peace, for joy, that light might shine in the darkness. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that you would just wrap us in that light and in that peace and in that joy. Lord, we have this unshakable faith that can be ours by acknowledging you came and you're coming again. 
and in the midst of anything, I can have this irrational peace because it's the peace of Christ in the midst of anything. Your word is true. You are faithful to the end, and you are coming to right every wrong. Thank you for coming at Christmas. Amen.